very, very good evening to you folks. Mark here on the tail end of Fellowship Day 430. It's a late Friday afternoon and as you can probably hear, I'm coming round the horse cycle again. I don't think I can blame my kids for their nursery plague this time, but I'm just about to lose my voice. So let me come to a brief introduction of this episode before I can't do it anymore. This is formally day 430 of the fellowship, but I'm coming to you with what is actually a follow-up to day 392, which was busy as your choice. That episode was recorded on my road back from the University of Birmingham after giving a couple of invited lectures there, one on chemistry and one on the imposter phenomenon book. I spoke then about making time for the things you want to do hence busy being your choice. This, if you like, is turning the clock back. This is a recording from the second of those two lectures that I gave at the University of Birmingham. This is a a bonus with some additional content that relates to the book You Are Not a Fraud, A Scientist's Guide to the Imposter Phenomenon. In this lecture, you hear what is, in effect, snippets from chapters four and five of the book. You'll hear readings from each of them and then lectures that are built on those stories that are introduced from the readings from the book. So you've got those two parts of the lectures up front. Following that, what I'm including here as well is the really vibrant Q&A which followed the main lecture. This I hope will include some of the sorts of questions you might be thinking about asking about the imposter phenomenon and anything to do with that challenge in your life and career. That's the thing that is, of course, at front of mind at the moment, being on the book launch month. So I hope you enjoy this bonus lecture from that trip to the University of Birmingham, looking at chapters four and five of my book. I hope you enjoy even more the Q&A which follows. And off the back of that, a reminder, just before that voice of mine gives up, that if you have any questions, comments, queries, suggestions for me, you can reach out on the podcast web pages at dr-marc-reid.com forward slash podcast. Each and every episode page has a Q&A form at the bottom of it. Fill in your details, send me a written question or upload an audio recording. I will listen or listen to it or read it directly. I will play it back or read it out on a Q&A episode of the podcast and give you the fresh, unprepared answer from the head and from the heart as best I can. So please do reach out on the podcast web pages if you've got anything you'd like to contribute to the programme. To the programme? I've never called it that before. Anyway, that's probably a good point to let this voice of mine rest. Without further ado, please enjoy this bonus episode covering chapters four and five of You Are Not a fraud. Take care. Thanks very much, Sarah. Our dearest Adeline, when you were a tiny baby, you loved the bath. You were almost ready to talk. You were excited to walk, but your love of splashing in the bath was very, very clear. You would look up at us with those amazing blue eyes, smile as wide as your ears, and splash, splash, splash. But you, our cute and curious little girl, also loved to play with a tiny little turtle toy at bath time. When you weren't splashing with your handies, 
You would reach for the little green turtle, slowly pick it up with your wee fingers and thumbs, only to chew on it like you chewed everything back then. We watched on as your magic mind grew to become our clever little girl, splashing and finding and picking up her very own turtle toy in her big girl bath. You probably think we're being very silly. And you're right, we are. And you would be right to tell us just how easy it was to find that tiny little turtle toy in the bath. You're right, it is easy. And we are being very, very silly. But we tell you this now, our beautiful and blossoming girl, because we want to share with you something that is very important, something we've had in our minds ever since you were a blue-eyed baby. Your little turtle toy from the bath was about the size of your baby handy, about the size of a golf ball. Imagine that it wasn't the size of a golf ball, but the size of a wee peanut. If we threw the little peanut-sized turtle toy in the bath, you, our brilliant love, would still find it. It would be a little more difficult finding a toy in the bath the size of a peanut rather than one the size of a golf ball. But we know you would find it. We're still being very silly, but please stay with us. Keep on reading. Imagine instead of throwing your wee peanut-sized turtle toy into the bath, that it was thrown into the deep blue sea. Now that's a big bath. You would find it much harder to pick up your toy because you probably wouldn't know where in the deep blue sea it went. You could splash, splash, splash for all the days and all the nights and it would still be hard to find that toy again. You might even say it was too hard or impossible. We tell you this silly story, our gorgeous angel, because to us, finding you was like finding a tiny bath toy in the big blue sea. It was almost impossible, but we found you. And to us, you are the most special person in the whole world. You might forget our funny story about the bath, but always remember this. As you grow up to be even taller, even more amazing, you will find things you love, things that make you happy. Things that make you sad, things that you find easy, and things that are harder than getting your wee toy back from the big blue sea. And for all of it, whether you're laughing or crying, we will be here for you. We will help you be whatever you want to be, because to us, you are our impossible little joy from the big blue sea. You mean the world to us now, and we want the world to be yours. Wherever you want to go, wherever you want to be, we will be in your heart, loving you more than you could ever know. Yours, with all the biggest kisses and cuddles, Mummy and Daddy. Hopefully not what you expected, and uh, hopefully you breathe a sigh of relief as I don't dissolve into tears at this point. The reason I share you that story, the one about this little girl here, who now looks like this with her little brother, is because that's what I read to her, a letter that she hasn't read yet. Of course, she's still very young, but it's a letter we want to give to her when she's much older. And it was a letter that I wrote around the time that I was uh, deep in study about one part of this imposter story that you're all here to listen to today. And it's one part that, if nothing else, I want you to remember because you needn't care about me or my family. But the story you're about to hear is the story of not just me, not just Adeline or even Lachlan now, but it's the story of you and everyone here. It's the one story that connects us. And you'll see why in a second that relates to this feeling of being an imposter. Now this story, the one that's of all of us, is about to play out on the screen for you. So let me walk you through it. If we start here, this story of us begins with some part of the world. Wherever you're from, it doesn't matter. But in that world that we all share, the person that would become your biological father and your biological mother would have had their place in the world. And they might have carved out 
a third, a quarter, a fifth of it in their time apart. But there was a chance event that meant that these two people met one another once upon a time. Now, a conservative estimate of that alone is about one in 20,000 of those people coming together somewhere in the world and meeting one another. But then, if you add to that the odds of those two people going on a date, going on a second date, maybe going on a third or fourth or a fifth, and then consider the coin flip that they actually stayed together long enough to carve out a long-term relationship. The odds of that alone are about one in 2,000, but now you need to consider that on top of the part about them ever meeting at all. So the total odds of all of that are about one in 40 million. But the story doesn't end there, it keeps going. Because without looking in too much detail at the birds and the bees, you can then consider the 100,000 eggs and the many more sperm produced in a lifetime for you to eventually become the product of that unlikely union between your mother and father. And those odds are about one in 400 quadrillion. And still that's not the full story because none of that considers the story of evolution and the fact that not a single one of your direct ancestors perished en route to making you to put your bum in the seat today. None of that is considered in the simple case of your mum and dad meeting one another. And all of that plus evolution is a chance of one in 10 to the power of 45,000. And if I cut out some parts of the story just to get to the punchline now, the total odds of you being here right now are about one in 10 to the power of over 2 million. A ridiculous number that no one would ever dare try to fathom. One in 10 to the power of over 2 million is bigger than the number of atoms in our universe. There's only 10 to the 80 atoms in the observable universe. So all of that story there, all of those odds added together is the story of me, of you, of my kids, your parents, any kids that you might have. This is the one story that brings all of us together. And if you forget all of the detail of that, remember that in all of it, there's one very, very ridiculous number, that it's one in 10 to the power of over 2 million, the chances of you ever being born and sentient enough to come here today and everything else that you've done in your life. It's a ridiculous number. It's a stupid number. One will never understand, but it's the story of us and it's the story, the real story of luck. Now, why luck? Because luck is one of those things that when we're considering this feeling, what you know, and what you think other people know versus the reality of the fact that what you know is largely complementary to what other people know. This story of luck is part of this overall story of the imposter phenomenon, more commonly but wrongly known as the imposter syndrome. This story of luck is a big slice of the pie that is the overall feeling of not being good enough for your job, feeling that you're about to be found out and thrown out of the workplace that you're underqualified for all of it. Luck is a big part of that story. Now, in taking this to research, what I've been doing over the past five years is to gather data and survey people to give scores like this. This score here is my score of feeling like an imposter on a, a known psychological scale that goes from zero to 100. Zero being someone who's never ever experienced feeling like an imposter, it's not part of their life experience. They don't know what it's like, it never occurs. The closer you get to 100, the more regular, severe, chronic those experiences are that make you feel like you're underqualified, not fit for the job, and someone's about to find you out. So I was quite high on that scale. I was around 70. But what I did over the past five years was to look at over 800 stories of the same thing plus some additional questions I'm not going into at the moment. But if you look at this scale, again, just for a reminder, it goes from zero up to 100. No imposter experience down on the left. Chronic imposter experiences that are very severe, up towards 100 on the right-hand side. And on the y-axis there is simply the number of people who had a particular score. You'll see the number peaks at around 80 here. 
in the final study and in my books, that's the total number of people is well over 800. So this is actually an earlier data set that you're seeing today. But this overall pattern remains the same regardless of the number of people. Where what we find is that for those coming forward, the scores are very heavily weighted, very skewed, to put it in more statistical terms, towards the right-hand side of that scale. In other words, this tells you something that you might have heard before if you've ever looked at anything to do with this entire phenomenon, which is it's more common than you might think. It's surprisingly common, in fact. That's why one of the reasons why it's not a syndrome, it's not something that carries physical symptoms. It's not something that eventually is diagnosed as a disease. It's a phenomenon because it's a part of the human experience. Feeling like an imposter is not a syndrome. So even if you forget the ridiculous number of how lucky it is for you to be here, tell everyone you know who says imposter syndrome that it's not a syndrome. Now, taking that further, I mentioned that we had over 800 people coming forward for this. So actually, what you're about to see is some of the more updated numbers and proof that the scale, the, the skewing remains the same. So there again is a score around 70 to show where someone is in the scale. But what we also asked people was to say, describe your experience in an emoji. Right, so there's the score in the emoji. But then when you look at the subset of scores for the same emoji, there's quite a range of scores. And so one of the things that comes out of that is the idea that you cannot, let's say as a mentor to someone who might feel like this, judge how they're feeling based on their expressions alone. It's very consistent with another broader part of psychology where, for example, certain emotions only exist in certain cultures and names for those emotions only exist in those cultures. So what looks like surprise or shock to us might be fear or even happiness in some cultures in other parts of the world. So the imposter experience is in part quantifiable, but what it can't be correlated with is what you see on the surface of someone. You cannot judge that particular book by its cover, which is another reason why conversations about this phenomenon are so important. And it's crucial that we're able to speak openly about it because you will not be able to tell from someone's face if they're experiencing it. Now, why does this tie into luck? Because a part of that overall score is actually a series of 20 questions, one of which asks or points this statement out to people. I sometimes feel my success is down to luck. So when that particular question is asked, those in the survey are asked to, uh, uh, to describe how much they agree with that statement. A score of one would be a disagree entirely with it. I strongly disagree with what you would normally see on such a survey. Up to a score of five, which is the polar opposite of that, I strongly agree that this statement is part of my experience. So when you look at that subset of the data, you see that not everyone feels that way. But again, it's almost like a, a microcosm of the larger scores. Most of the scores are skewed towards the higher numbers. A lot of people feel that their own success is down entirely to luck. Now, one of the things that I then did when I was thinking about my own daughter and thinking about writing this book was then to try to find more of these stories about life and how the things that we can read about are, are just so ridiculously unlikely that every story you ever come across is interesting, even if it looks boring on the surface. And this is just one random example. There's many more like it. Where if you look at someone like Francis Drake from the Elizabethan age, one might have first assumed that him, him passing on the name Francis Drake to his descendants was an easy circumstance of passing that on to his son or daughter and then further down the generations for the same thing. There are indeed other Francis Drakes that came after the first, but not a single one is directly descended from the man on the left because he died of dysentery far from home on his voyages around the globe without ever having any children. In fact, it was his brother and his children who carried the name first. But then the reason I show this woman on the right is because she is a distant descendant of the same person. And the only reason she's alive is because one of the Francis Drake descendants was not in fact the first of a particular generation, but the third Francis born because the two before him died in infancy. 
So the fact that this person with this medallion can be passed on to this person wearing the exact same medallion centuries later is one tiny story of that ridiculousness that we spoke about in numbers at the start. Once again, I challenge you, and I'll call out the fact that you probably do not care about these people or even me. But I'll tell you a wee bit more about me because it's a lesson that is then a challenge to you. Because I then turned that lens on myself. And to share another picture, this is Adeline again. This is her when she was first born. And I was sitting on the couch across from my grandparents, and that's my, my paternal grandfather, Archie, holding uh, Adeline. And when I was looking at that, this was amidst all of this learning for me. And I realized in that moment that these are two pairs of eyes, four generations apart, that almost never were. In fact, the story of my grandparents here, as you can probably pick up, I've got a strong Glasgow accent. That's where a large part of my family is from. And in the time that my grandparents, Archie and Margaret, were growing up, there was a lot of uh, religious and sectarian divides in Glasgow and other parts of the West. And in fact, Catholic, uh, Archie being a Catholic and Margaret being a Protestant meant that their parents never, ever wanted them to be together. And in fact, they had to write letters to one another in secret. And when they eventually did get married, large parts of their family just shunned them and never even showed up. So the fact that they came together in union is part of the story of the unlikeliness of me and in turn, the incredible unlikeliness of young Adeline. So the challenge back to you then is not to care about me or Francis Drake or anyone else that you might want to research in history, but to look at your own family circumstance and to figure out where all the little forks in the road are that show in plain terms the story of your own unlikeliness and why luck is something to be celebrated <laughs> and not to be cast in a shadow. Now that's one part of what I want to share with you this afternoon. There's one small other part, that's in large part, if you like, uh, one chapter of my book. And before we finish, I'm going to tell you another bit of the same story, not about luck, but another thing that's um, in the realms of the imposter experience that we might take for granted. So to do that, if you bear with me a second, I'm going to tell you a little bit about this photograph uh, and read for you a very short passage from my book itself to set the scene for this. A quick one at this halfway point, a reminder that my new book, You Are Not A Fraud, a Scientist's Guide to the Imposter Phenomenon is available now, and you can grab your copy as an ebook, paperback, hardback, and soon audiobook from the links in the description. Thanks in advance for checking it out. Let's get on with the episode. On April 19th, 1995, MacArthur Wheeler, the man you can see on the screen, stood aghast at his front door of his home. He wasn't expecting to be greeted by arresting policemen. In a story that has now attained an arguable level of infamy, the reprimanded Wheeler didn't plead innocence when the police took him away. Instead, he exclaimed with genuine surprise the words, But I wore the lemon juice. I wore the juice. The detectives who arrested MacArthur Wheeler were led to his address by tip-offs from the public who saw stills of Wheeler captured on bank CCTV footage reported on the 11 o'clock news. By 10 past midnight, Wheeler was in handcuffs. The bank robber's arrest wasn't eye-wateringly fast on the account of any particularly sophisticated investigative work. MacArthur Wheeler robbed two banks wearing no mask and no disguise. He did, however, wear lemon juice all over his face. Before robbing the banks, Wheeler learned about the use of lemon juice as invisible ink, which only becomes visible on heating. He deduced that smearing the citrus spy ink on his face would render his face unidentifiable to video cameras. 
to Wheeler's credit, he actually tried to test his invisible uh, face theory before robbing the banks. Um, unfortunately, uh, a poorly aimed selfie blurred the photo, but served to convince Wheeler of the obscuring magic of lemon juice. When you first learn of something new, your confidence grows fast. You knew nothing before you started. Now you're so much more aware. What you are not aware of at this point is that you're starting out over in the new in the world from a top mount stupid. Once that penny drops, so does your confidence. Straight into the valley of despair. You thought you knew it all, but you don't. And now begins the real grunt work to grow your confidence legitimately up to genuine skills and mastery. But there are those who stay on Mount Stupid, those who thrive there. They are confident, incompetent, and completely unaware of it. I hear some sniggers, which leads me to believe that I hope all of us have in our minds someone who just might fit the description of MacArthur Wheeler and who just might think that they're good enough to rob a bank and get away with it without any mask or any other form of getaway. This is the, uh, uh, one other part of the story of the imposter experience. It's trying to marry your struggle to get good at something with how the struggle itself makes you feel. Now, there is some hardcore psychology behind this because inspired by the MacArthur Wheeler story in the late 90s, two psychologists, David Dunning and Justin Kruger, did studies like this where they gave people tests of grammar and logic and some other tests as well. And if you look at the distribution of participants, so there's people in the bottom quartile, the second, the third, and the top, so those who do the worst and those who do the best, and the scores on the test go with that correlation, right? That's not hard to understand. The bottom people scored the worst, the best people scored the top. But the green data that you can now see playing out are those very same people's impression of how they did. That's the perceived score or the perceived ability of that group of people. The point is, is that those who did worst felt they did best. And those who did best felt that they did the worst. This is the generalization of MacArthur Wheeler's story. There are those, yes, who will feel overconfident because they simply don't realize how incompetent they still are or might remain. But the vast majority of us who will feel this imposter experience because it's part of the human experience lie much closer to the right-hand side of this plot. How you perceive your ability is oftentimes not a reflection of the reality. And if you take this back to the research that I've been doing for this book, you can carve up the data in a smaller slice again to ask questions like this one. I can give the impression that I'm more competent than I really am. Most people strongly agree with that statement. You can go even further than that because another question similar to it is, I'm sometimes afraid that others will discover the knowledge I lack. That fear is in the vast majority of those 800 participants. And finally, I'm afraid of being found out that I'm not that capable. Once again, the vast majority of people from the large set of people who experience the imposter phenomenon agree that they think they're about to be found out. How do you generalize this in a nice picture? Well, there's a graph of confidence and competence. And when you first learn something new, you'll gain a lot of confidence fast, but then you'll realize you don't know it all. You hit the dip. And this is the point where you're most likely to give up before you realize that getting towards the goal takes much more work than you first realized. There are those who remain on Mount Stupid and those who remain there are those who are likely to enjoy a little bit of lemon juice on their face. So the point of all of that is to realize that 
most of the time, if you're learning something new, if you're moving into a new degree from undergraduate, if you're moving into a new area of science after one chapter of your thesis, if you're moving job, if you're moving from academia to industry or from industry back to academia, all of these changes can lead to steep learning curves that will ultimately put you in this valley of despair. But with that awareness, please despair not, because what you are is at the bottom of something far more exciting. You're at the dip that is the point of ascendancy towards the skills and the expertise that you're trying to develop. And for all of those two stories together, that of luck and that of understanding that you're not on Mount Stupid, you're not the bank robber with no mask. Whatever you take from that, this is what I try to take from everything these days because I've taken myself far too seriously at times, felt like I'm an imposter at every new turn. And more often than I'd like to think about just giving up and trying something far simpler. We found out very recently here, uh, as, as I felt I had to mention yesterday, that you recently lost one of your dear colleagues, Professor John Fossey, someone I was fortunate to meet a couple of times, so apologies if I'm repeating myself for those who were here yesterday. I met John a couple of times, and you know he's been taken from us far sooner than anyone would like to have thought. It was a shock, and my strong condolences are with everyone here and John's family. I haven't been fortunate enough to meet him. He was one person that I know had a good vision of how he wanted to be as a human being and, and not just as a scientist. I met him first in 2017 when I was right at the start of my academic career and I was breaking it from everything I was attempting to try. And John was the first person at one of the first conferences I ever attended to just show genuine interest in talking to me which I hold as an endearing memory now because it was a year later in 2018 when I started following John on Twitter. He remains the only person that I've ever seen correct and repost a tweet that someone else wrote about him that says John Fossey did this and published this paper and he would repost it to say it was the team of John Fossey. So someone whose ego was in check and whose balance of life I think was um, somewhat inspiring and uh, I feel very sorry for, for everyone here and for John's family. But the point of saying all of that and, and, and working that into this story is that all of us here need to be more like Richard Feynman than Woodward to his right. When both of these men won the 1965 Nobel Prize, one for physics and one for chemistry, this photograph tells me which one of them was having more fun with life than the other. So whatever your story is, and however you want to take things away from today's talk, please remember that you need to have as much fun as possible. Because it's highly unlikely that you are ever, ever going to be here. So enjoy that ridiculousness. Thanks for your attention. I can't wait to have some questions and conversation with you. Cheers. Thank you very much. Thanks, Mark. That was a fascinating talk. Um, I was curious by your data where you showed the log normal, was it, type plot of um, imposter syndrome, the, the sort of where it's, it's got a maximum around 80. Mm -hmm. And I think you showed the emojis. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think there was one example that you showed, and you said that, yeah. you know, that, you know, that, that you can't tell from somebody's face how they feel. I'm kind of curious, knowing whether you've kind of broken that data down to see whether there's a correlation, you know, whether the, the, the maximum changes depending on, on people's performance and maybe where they are in career stage. And I think it's a, oh, yeah. it's a terribly difficult kind of soup to kind of really kind of understand. But I, I'm kind of wondering whether imposter syndrome in some people actually spurs them on to succeed, for want of a better description yeah. or descriptor, uh, or imposter syndrome is, is what maybe inhibits people from succeeding, or there just is no correlation and it's just completely down to the individual. You're poetically spot on to say that there's a soup of stuff there, and indeed there's many dimensions to that, so um, 
correct me if I miss anything with what you've just said. So firstly, on this point of emojis, what you see is that regardless of the emoji itself, there is a spread in the scores. So that was, this was one example that was consistent with all nine possible examples, if I can put it that way. The thing that that leads on to, um, that you very astutely mentioned, is uh, whether or not the imposter experience can be a good thing. It absolutely can. Where it takes a dark turn is not having the level of self-awareness to realise what can go wrong with that. For example, there's a two-sided coin as part of the imposter experience that makes it both useful and it can take a darker turn if it goes too far. I spoke about luck and competence. The third part is comparison with other people. That's where it's probably the clearest example of where it can be very good because psychologically social comparison is part of how you figure out where you are in the pecking order and how far along you are in understanding things. It's far less energetically intensive to look at your close social circle than to look at a hardcore set of data to give you the objective answer. So that, you know, that's, that's a, a part of evolutionary psychology. Where that gets dark then and it becomes a bad thing rather than a good thing is when you realise that you're comparing the surface level story of someone at that point in time and not considering the story of how they became the expert or successful or indeed how they overcame many points of rejection or failure to get to where they are. It's if you stick to the surface level comparison that it makes what can be a very good part of the imposter experience a very bad one. And it, it turns from being an imposter experience into one where self-esteem becomes a real issue. And that's where it becomes a soup because one thing we found from the data set here is that the imposter experience is like the centre of a Venn diagram where on the circumference of that there's self-esteem issues, there's post-traumatic stress issues, there's other things that are not the imposter experience, but they can lead to points of overlap. I think I got everything there. <laughs> I'm not sure. Was there anything else I missed? No, no I, think, I, I think you sort of like captured it there. It just got, again, I think it just kind of reinforces that it's very hard to understand where, it, where imposter, syn imposter phenomenon comes from and maybe how best to sort of mitigate against maybe some of the more negative sides of it. Yeah. Um, uh, as, uh, as a sort of thematic lesson I've tried to weave through all of this work uh, that you raised by one word choice there is mitigate. Uh, one of the consistent mistakes I see throughout both the less so the scientific literature, let me correct myself before I go down that road, more so the pop science literature and other books on the subject is to say that it's about crushing it, curing it, getting rid of it, overcoming it, which is an entire falsehood and it misleads people down the road of disappointment to say that one day this thing will just be gone and I'll never experience it again. But if you're living your life to the fullest and putting yourself in new experiences all the time, those can breed new instances of something that you thought you'd got rid of. So the language is as important as the understanding itself. And what I think we should be encouraging is a point of management, not overcome, overcoming, but management of it. Because as I've said throughout today, this is part of the human experience. And therefore, a much healthier frame is to treat this like a friend that might always be with you in one way or another. So it's learning to live with that friend and manage it and being aware of it, rather than thinking one day that will be someone you say goodbye to. Thanks. To build upon that, we've talked about the comparison people do. Is the aim of this research then to, to help people with that dialogue, to bring people more aware? Because you're quite visible with LinkedIn and everything with all the work that you do. Is that one of your major aims with this? Is that what you want to promote discussion about it? Yeah, so... Uh, this, or at least the audio bit of this, so I've been trying more and more to put out versions of these talks um, on my YouTube channel firstly. Do parts of the audio uh, on a podcast now as well, so trying to keep most of it uh, out there for everyone to take something from as much as possible. 
The point where all of it I've tried to condense somewhat into a book and to take your point is one that my editor is throwing down my throat at the moment, which is to, at the end of every chapter, really bring out all of the sorts of challenges that I've mentioned today, the, the tools and the exercises that everyone can go and try for themselves. So it's absolutely something where it should never be simply a lecture, but the lecture is the start of something that people can try for and experience for themselves. Yeah, yeah. And I had to do that. All of this started as a, a diary in my first postdoc because I didn't understand when I moved from my PhD to postdoc and worked with an entire new team of people that I would start Googling them and comparing myself and thinking they were much smarter than me. And I didn't know what it was called back then. So I was just writing about it. And through that, I started finding stuff about what people call the imposter syndrome. And it all started from there. So it was to help myself first. Mm -hmm. But hopefully, it's not just me anymore. Thank you, Mark. I really enjoyed that. I think I don't really have a question. It's more thoughts or comments. Um, so building on what Melanie said and then what you sort of said about mitigating and this idea of you know, accepting this thing as a friend, um, I think that's a really important uh, point. Mm. You know, go, you know um, sorry, my mind. I've had a cold the last week and my mind is full of cotton wool. <laughs> <laughs> so... I guess I, I've done a lot of reading on um, this form of cognitive behavioural therapy called acceptance and commitment therapy, yes. which um, where, you know, you, you sort of, rather than trying to fight against, you know, negative thoughts, intrusive thoughts, yeah. um, you know, negative influences in your life, you sort of say, okay, well, I accept that as part of the human condition. You know, I accept that this is ingrained in me. I've evolved to have some of these, you know, natural things inside of me and you know I, it sucks sometimes and it can get overwhelming but you know I just have to find a way to live by it I think something that's maybe um interesting to think of going forward you know there's there was a little bit of me when you showed the Richard Feynman picture of oh for heaven's sake I really ought to just you know I really should relax more and enjoy life and I, you know I, I've been thinking the last few days I've been overwhelmed with stress thinking oh my god I've got this deadline next week and that day and I've got this <laughs> yeah. lecture this afternoon I've not done this ah help uh, and I really ought to just you know I've been I've been like this for the last you know however many years I've been an academic you know I'm always stressed about something and it always works out okay I ought to be able to relax you know and enjoy life um and I think it's it's very dangerous to to, to have that thought isn't it and you know, I guess something I've, I've said, there's a lot of younger faces here. And, you know, I guess something I've learned, well, I've still not learned, actually, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> but then I'm trying to learn is, is to sort of say, you know, it's so easy to say to yourself, you know, I ought to be able to, you know, I should just relax. I should just enjoy the fact that I'm so lucky to be here and everything. But, um, you know, I, I can't do that. And I have to step back and say, Are you okay, yeah, that would be really nice. But, you know, it's it's too easy to say that and it's it's you know it's not human to be able to do that you know yeah. i'm gonna have all these troubles alongside me um so accepting that you know it's not just as easy as that to just scrap all the sort of negative side effects of you know life and and just relax and enjoy it and leave all the stress behind is i think something quite powerful um sorry i'm talking a lot um but something else i found really really helpful through um this acceptance and commitment therapy that sort of links into what you said was mm -hmm. um, I did an exercise where you take a piece of paper um, and on one side of it you write, you know, what are all the reasons for you being where you are now in terms of your motivators? So mm -hmm. I'm an academic because I'm driven, you know, I want to achieve, I want to prove to my peers that I can do it, I want acceptance from people around the world to build my ego or whatever, you know, um, I, I like financial stability, I like having independence, these are all the reasons, the motivators that keep me where I am. And then on the other side of the piece of paper, you write, okay, so what are the, what are the negatives to that? The negatives are, I lie awake at night thinking, oh my gosh, will my funding ends next year and what am I going to do next? Um, you know, I worry about what my colleagues think of me, I think they're going to, you know, think oh no she's not as successful I have this imposter phenomenon you know all the negative side effects and I did this with a therapist and they said so what you can do is you can take that piece of paper and scrunch it up and throw it in the bin and then all those negative things have gone okay you can throw them all away but you then have to throw away the positive things which are you know I really like what I do I value you know I really enjoy being independent I enjoy being financially independent you know doing my own research I enjoy supporting students, you know, so you throw away both sides of the coin. And I thought that was a really powerful way to say, okay, I have to accept all these, you know, troubles 
it's part of where I am and it sucks and I, you know, mitigate or manage or whatever the words you use, you know, learning to live with that um, is, is something I can try and do. But, but, you know, accepting they're there is possibly the most powerful first step. Sorry, that Indeed. was not a question. It was very much a discussion. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, briefly distill that. Um, it is something that I've, I've dedicated a chapter to. See, most people have heard of CBT or cognitive behavioural therapy, and ACT is an evolution of that. Um, but altogether, we can, you can view it, as you very nicely put, as one very powerful tool to start to frame all of the things that might otherwise just be a jumble in your mind and you don't know how to decode them. So it's a, a really great thing that you've mentioned and want to be viewed as one tool of many en route to managing the experience and others like it. So thank you, Andrew. Thanks, Mark. Interesting stuff. I've got a couple of questions on the data. Yes. Because I think in data. And I've got a question for you that's a bit more open in general. Is there data. anyone that scores zero? I know you've got probably got a relatively self-selecting group here. Yes. Right, to, to, Every to survey is, yeah. You know, because uh, I, I, I'd be, does anyone ever score zero in this? Is, are people that insufferably arrogant? Or <laughs> <laughs> does, does everyone have some degree of this effectively? I believe the absolute bare minimum score in that entire data set was 28. So which in itself is exceptionally low. I mean, the frequency was probably two or three maximum. There was a several in their 30s as well. <laughs> Thankfully, it's anonymized, so I don't know how insufferable <laughs> these people are, but they were kind enough to come forward at the very least. Um, to generalize that, to see whether there is a trend, you're absolutely right, firstly, that all of these things, that's the number one thing I've learned about essentially, you know, with the help of people who are qualified, pretending to be a psychologist for a short time. It's the one, it's almost a curse of psychology that most of these things, the way you collect data, has the filter of it being almost self-selected. And it leads to very difficult questions about the likes of uh, demographics, of where people are from, gender, etc. And they're difficult questions to answer um, not for the obvious reasons, but the reasons of figuring out the mechanism of how you get the data in the first place. So the absence of data oftentimes doesn't mean the data doesn't exist. It's just that you've not been able to collect it. The trend, though, is not of those people at the zeros. But you do see as people are uh, from, the, from youth, as they get older, there is a convincing trend that your imposter score diminishes. As, as you gain more experience, as you learn to view life differently, more philosophically, the score can diminish. And that's one, it's a great point of your question to say to people that I haven't mentioned here that none of those scores, if you decide to do it, is, is static. So it's a part of my website where people can reach out to do it if they want. Um, you could do it today and it would be one score and do it a year from now and it would be a different score. So that point of experience is very important. Um, so the self-selecting part is real. The low scores are very, very rare, but there has to be awareness of how you're collecting data. But there is still a trend, although the numbers are in the higher range, that as you get older, the numbers go down. You had another question? You've answered my second question. All oh, right, okay. semi my third, actually. Okay. But I'm going to follow up on that anyway. Fire away. I mean, my answers to some of your questions would definitely have changed through my career. Interesting. In particular, okay. that, you know, that, that luck question. Yeah. I, I always remember I did an interview with Turning Points and um, they were asking me about my career and what are the turning points in your career. And, yeah. and I, I described everything as well. I was just lucky. I was in the right place and I got this offer and then I, this happened. And I was looking and the, the, the interviewer turned around and said, it might not just all be luck. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you've got to at least realize there's an opportunity there to take it. Indeed. And so I know my questions will have changed over time. And I know what I've done to you know go through the the, va the valley of, of doubt, as you can, or whatever yeah. exactly called yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. But what's your advice to the young people here in particular who are going through those those things more regularly and that more mm. doubt, and of how to get out of that? Because I agree with you, it's about mitigation. Mm -hmm. I agree with you, it's about living with it. Mm -hmm. And your view will change as you get, you know, I think with most things, you soften on things as you get yeah, older, yeah, right? Yeah, your view yeah. will change as you, as you, as you age. But... You know, some people are going to get caught and mount stupid, right? and they're, they're never going to get off it. Other people are going to get in there, and they can either go one way to success, 
or they can let it take them over and perhaps not have that success. So what, what would your advice be to people who are doubting themselves of how to get to that level of success? Uh, there's, there's many things that could come to here, but, but to perhaps try to stick to a practical example and trying to, if I dare say so, lead by example is I've taken to having on my website no longer just my CV or biography, but the, my CV of failures. So there's, you know, when people Google me before coming to somewhere like this, they'll see a CV. You know, they can see the jobs I've had, the occasional award papers, etc. All the stuff that would go on any job level CV. But the next page along is the CV of failures, which says, you know, here's all the, you know, the fellowships, the lectureships, the industry jobs I've applied for, you know, all the stuff in and out of academia, even beyond industry that I've tried that has gone belly up. Here's a bullet point list that mirrors in some way the CV that you're expecting to see but hopefully you see that that second list is far longer. So that, that's a practical way of answering your question such that one needs to become comfortable with failure and rejection as a normality. <laughs> I am preaching to the converted crowd here, I realise. But nonetheless, that, that is one of the first points of awareness that, um, back to the earlier, questions around um, comparison. When someone compares to the point that it gets darker and less productive, it's oftentimes because they're considering a person's CV and not seeing the dark data that hasn't been shown or not collected, the CV of failures. So that's, that's something I've got on the website. I've spoke about it in a podcast. I've put it in the book. Because I just want to get that sort of message out there that that's one of the things people can do. Um, so I, I would put a pin in that there to say, if you forget anything else, try writing down all of those times that you didn't get to where you wanted to, and then you'll see the fullness of your effort versus the baby steps forward that you're taking. Thank you. Cheers, Andrew. Question up the back. Sorry, do you mind if I get a bit of exercise? <laughs> and pass this along to you. Thank you very much. I'll stand here and get it back from you. <laughs> Testing, one, two, okay. Hello. So um, um, you don't have to go back to the incompetence and confidence graph, but mm -hmm. given that the data was also collected by like a niche demographic of people, like mostly the people that you see with the lowest confidence and the highest competence were just mainly overachievers and academics or postgrads or whatnot, wouldn't you just say it's kind of inevitable to have imposter syndrome and that's a reflection of kind of you're doing it right because the more you study something, the more you realize how much you don't know about the field? And is there a correlation between people who have had severe imposter syndrome and how much they achieve later on? Because if you were to just be arrogant and think there's nothing else for you to yes. learn, yes. are you gonna really grow? Indeed. That's all. Well, um, there, I think there's several excellent questions in there. So until it builds on Andrew's question about self-selection in a way that uh, there is indeed in that data set more people from academia than elsewhere. But there was a significant number of people from, um, as I've put it in the study, public sector, i.e. largely academia versus private sector. And when you make that comparison, um, there is quite a compelling difference in the histograms where those in the private sector suffer imposter experiences to a lesser extent, or at least insofar as the score would lead you to believe. So I would push back a little bit on it being inevitable, but the great thing that you've raised there is that you have to have a very astute awareness of your environment as well as yourself. And it you know, so happens that there's many things within academia that are poised to trigger such experiences where, you know, you can argue whether it's more or less than the private sector, but we're very metrics driven. There are many points of possible comparison. There's a lot more weight on a CV than a CV of failures. There's a lot of things that come together to almost make it inevitable, but 
it doesn't play out that way in every single environment. And indeed, it doesn't have to be that way here as long as you're aware of it and that those external factors can influence your internal management. I believe there was maybe a, a second part of what you were mentioning that I may have forgot, oh, so forgive me. Oh, there's a correlation between people who ah, experience yes. imposter syndrome and if it's, you're doing it right if you have it because it means you're going to grow more? Um, or will it mean? I think that's, I, I have no idea. <laughs> uh, I think that's a longer term study. That's the sort of thing where you would actually have to consciously follow people for a longer period of time. So this was more of a short term exercise, but you know, there's definitely precedent out there for doing that sort of thing. Maybe if uh, I get the energy, I might try it again. But it's, um, you know, it's the sort of thing that pops up a lot in child psychology. You know, subjects will be first engaged when they're young and then followed into adulthood. So you need a lot of patience and a lot of time for those studies. So I don't think we can really say that. All we can say, um, one challenge I've raised that I've not mentioned today is that if you start to look for the stories, you'll find them. You know, I've found stories of people that I'm quite interested in, you know, various actors and things like that, um, other scientists. But, you know, whatever you're interested in, if you start Googling stories of people in that space who have felt like that, I can almost guarantee you'll find them. And that's one way to start to learn about the fact that it's very common and that despite that, those people have been able to somehow drive themselves forward to get into the public sphere and look successful and in one way or another demand your attention. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Um, I wanted to mention something in brief and then ask a quick question. Um, the sort of lemon juice analogy which we had <laughs> in the graph that went yeah. along with it was something that really resonated with me and the sort of cliche which came immediately to my mind was knowing enough to know you don't know enough. Uh -huh. um, and I guess that's kind of the pit of despair you get into after the, the mountain. Um, but the question I was going to ask is, um, do you, you mentioned that it's very difficult to recognize this phenomenon in other people. But do you think, as a community, we can do more to help move people from that sort of darker area of this phenomenon into the lighter area through awareness and through talking about it and you know, are, are there other systems that we can put in place to help people in a way? Yeah, I think that uh, is a nice question to end things on because it, it gives the opportunity to try and summarise a lot of what we've discussed in the Q&A, which is that we've discussed firstly several different tools that if made more aware of, let's say, they can, for example, then become part of um, just to use the example for this audience, part of the academic structure and the, you know, the non-scientific parts of coursework or learning that you do so that it can become more integrated and embedded. Um, I can't go too deep because I can't remember the reference off the top of my head to really back this up. However, there is, I think, some concern from those in industry who interview PhDs a complaint, if you will, that they're not rounded enough people because they've been too heavily embedded in something that's very, very niche and might not actually serve them all that much in the broadness of what they do in their next job. So in part, you know, there's incentive from the fact that we here are charged with leading the development of the next generation of world leading scientists. And are we doing all we can if all we do, I dare say, is give them a really interesting project to work on and publish with. I don't think so. That's great, thanks. Thank you. Can we thank our speaker, Mark? Thank you.